listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So if you are visiting with us, we're in a series uh, through the parables. We're calling it Jesus Stories. And parables are these simple word pictures, but then they illustrate these profound spiritual lessons. And so today, as Clint read the passage, we will be looking at one. But before we do that, I've asked some of our kids to come up and help me. So uh, I know some of you I asked to come on up. Haley, are you going to do it now, please? I promise you don't have to say anything. I promise. Marcus, were you coming up? Uh, who was coming? Uh, there were some. Y'all come up over here. I promise you don't have to say a word. Anybody else going once? Going twice? Are you sure? Maddie? Audra? All right. Well, here it is. I need your help to show something this morning. So y'all just kind of back up. Uh, but gets here. All right. So this morning, we're going to talk about something that is almost impossible. So I have some things that uh, we're told are almost impossible, meaning some people can do it. And so I thought, let's see if we have any here that can do this. So here's the first one. Without using your hands, can you wiggle your ears? You don't have that talent? I see eyebrows going up. All right, so here's another one. Can you raise one eyebrow like the rock? You know, Darren Johnson, can you raise one eyebrow up? Look, you almost there, Haley. Can't do it. All right, here's another one. Can you put your fist, make a fist, can you put a, your fist in your mouth? Try it. Haley, you're not even trying. All right, here's the, oh, Huck, you almost had that. All right, here's the last one. Can you lick, some people can do this, believe it or not. Can you lick your elbow? Can you do it? Can you lick your elbow? Try it. See if you can lick your elbow. You can't. Uh, Haley's almost there. Very close. Marcus, I think you just did. All right, so now have a seat right here. So see, these are things that are nearly impossible. Some people can do it, and some people can't. But I have three that they say that no one can do this. All right, so take, if you're right-handed or left-handed, uh, take whichever leg, and I want you to go in a clockwise motion. All right, just move your leg in a clockwise motion, like a clock, like this way. Another way, Marcus, your clock goes backwards. There you go. Now take your hand, and keeping your leg, they say it's impossible for you to start and to draw six. And here's what's going to happen. They're all going to try it too. So you move your leg in a clockwise motion, and then you try to make a six, unless you start in the middle and go backwards. I did figure that. You can't do it. All right, say so it's impossible. Here's another one. Without using your hands, it's impossible they say, whoever they say is, can, you cannot sneeze with your eyes open. You ever tried it? Unless, you know, you might could use your fingers, but without using your hands, say it's impossible. But here's the last one. You may not know this. It's impossible. Any of you really ticklish? I know Marcus is. Any of you ticklish? Haley, you are. Do you know you cannot tickle yourself? Try it. See, you just can't do it. Oh, hey, give him a hand. Good job. Y'all can go back and have a seat. So some things are nearly impossible. Some things are almost that way. So turn to Matthew 
18 this morning, we're going to talk about a very important topic. And what we're going to talk about this morning is something that is almost impossible. Because it is hard, it is painful, it's risky, and honestly, it doesn't come natural to us. What we're going to talk about today is not totally impossible, but it is really extremely difficult. This morning, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Now, when you think about forgiveness, it probably draws a lot of different kind of reactions. Especially, we talked this morning, we sang about it, about God's forgiveness to us. When we think about that, it brings feelings of gratitude, or at least it should, and peace. But when we talk about needing to seek someone's forgiveness, all of a sudden, it gets much more uncomfortable. Because let's be honest, it's very uncomfortable to ask someone to forgive me because we have to admit, man, I was wrong. And so, so that's uncomfortable. But I believe it is the far most uncomfortable thing about forgiveness is when we must extend forgiveness to someone who has wronged us or they've hurt us deeply. Now, I don't know why this is, and we're going to look at it this morning, but you know why it is so hard? Why is it so hard for us to forgive someone that has harmed us, that has hurt us deeply? Because it's nearly impossible, it is hard, it is difficult, it's risky because of this. Forgiveness is bearing the cost of someone else's sin. Forgiveness is bearing the cost, you taking it upon yourself and bearing the cost of someone else's sin. Don't know if you've ever heard forgiveness defined that way, but we're going to see this from Matthew 18. Let's begin in verse 21. So Peter, Apostle Peter, came up and he said to him, talking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Or how many times, how often do I need to forgive him? How many is seven a good number? How about as many as seven times? So Peter comes to Jesus and he is going to ask this question. We really don't know what was the, uh, the circumstances behind it. It could have been there's a rift among the disciples. It could have even been among Jesus' closest three of Peter, James, and John. I mean, Peter's the one that gets to speak all the time. James and John always worried about who's going to sit at Jesus' right or left. I'm sure there were some problems that these guys experienced. Now, so we're not for sure what it is, but Peter comes up and he says, Hey, how about this? I, I, I want to know, how many times should I forgive someone? But notice who his context is. He uses the word brother. So he's talking about a, a fellow Christian, a fellow follower of Jesus. So what this tells us is that this is an important lesson and a reminder for us as the church, as, as fellow believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Peter says, hey, is seven enough, Jesus? Now, Peter thinks he's landed on something great here because according to the rabbinic law, it was only three times. They kind of live by the three strikes in your outlaw. You know, you upset me or you hurt me once, I have to forgive you. You do it again, have to forgive you. Third time, you do, then that's it. You're on your own. So Peter thinks, hey, seven seems like a great number. I mean, it's twice as much as what the law says. So look at Jesus' response in 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, 
but 77 times. So Jesus is not seven times Peter, but 77 times. This actually could mean 77, but in the Greek it could also mean 70 times 7 or 490 times. So here's Jesus' point. His point is that our forgiveness for each other, it should be more than you can even imagine. Actually, I think he's saying unlimited. But I know what you're thinking is I'm thinking the same thing. It's like, listen, Mark, if you really knew, if you really knew my situation, well, if you really knew what this person, what they just keep doing, man, if you knew how many times this person has hurt me, they've let me down, they've broken their promises, and you're right, I have no idea. But we believe that Jesus, that he does. And so Jesus says, hey, Peter, come here. This reminds me of a story. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven. So once again, this is that phrase we've seen several times. That What is the kingdom of heaven? Or you just might say the kingdom of God. And what he's doing, he's using the parables to paint for us a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. But we have to ask, well, what is that? Well, the kingdom of God is the activity of God rightly ruling and governing and, and him having his place in the lives of his people. So Jesus is painting a picture of what it actually looks like for God to reign supremely in the lives of his people. He said, this is what it's going to look like. You want to what? True followers? What they look like? He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So Jesus comes up with two very common players, a king and a servant. But this is not just any ordinary servant we'll see about because of the amount of money we're about to see. Probably almost like a manager. Could almost be even a business partner in a way. And it says that he owes 10,000 talents. So a talent is the largest denomination of currency at this time in the Roman Empire. It's the highest, you know, I think ours is the $100 bill. It's the highest denomination that they have in the Roman Empire. There's nothing greater. And then 10,000 is the highest number in the Greek language. So you can see Jesus is really going for this kind of extreme kind of example. So a talent was a measurement of something. So a talent, the best that we can tell, was around 75 pounds okay so 75 pounds so picture that that a talent would be 75 pounds of gold or often silver there would be a scale you would weigh it out you would put a talent that would be 75 pounds so this man owes 75,000 pounds and I'm not for sure if it's in gold or in silver but what I could find is that if it's gold There'll be the equivalent of this man owing $3 trillion. So Jesus is going for this just unbelievable amount that he owes because his point is that he owes this astronomical debt. 
The servant owes a debt that really Jesus, I think, wants us to see is way beyond this man's ability to pay back. He wants us to see this servant, really, he is actually, probably every day, he's beyond hope. If this debt is ever called in, he knows he's hopeless. And the day comes. Notice what happens in 25. And since he could not pay, his master, the king, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So this was a very common thing that would happen in the Roman Empire at this time. If someone, if you couldn't pay your house note or the note on your car, whatever it might be, your family and you could be sold as an indentured servant. Either to them or they would auction you off and someone would pay your debt and you would then work that off, but you could still have a life. You could still go about your, you would still be together as a family, but a lot of your work would be then used to paying down that debt. They would garnish your wages. But it would have taken this man several lifetimes to pay back 10,000 talents. So he's hopeless. So notice what he does in verse 26. The only thing I think he can think of. So the servant, he fell on his knees imploring or begging, have patience on me and I will pay you everything. So he falls on his knees and he just begs for mercy. And he asks the king to have patience on him and that I'll repay everything back. But There are several important things in verse 26. First of all, we're not told how he incurred such a debt. In fact, a debt of this amount, man, a lot of people believe that this had to be incurred by probably stealing or embezzlement. Definitely some bad decisions. Because why would someone keep giving him money if if he was doing something that was right? Second, the servant says that he's going to pay back Everything. This would be an impossible task. There's no way this servant could ever repay a debt of 10,000 talents. Another thing is this servant, he's just not asking for more time. He says, have patience. And in fact, your translation might say long-suffering. Be long-suffering with me. It means patience in times of trouble or, or pain. It means when it gets really hard, you're not going to leave that person. So I think this man is asking this king, King, you're going to have to join in in my suffering and in my pain. Would you relate to me? Would you understand? Would you put yourself in my place? But another thing is this king, he is well within his rights to sell this man and all that he owns and even his family into service. No one would look at this king ill for doing this. But there's a fifth thing that I think is so important understanding this parable. And it's so different from our context, and it has to do with money. You see, in this day and time, the king, the king owed, owned everything. In fact, remember in Matthew 22, some men come to Jesus and they want to know about paying taxes. And Jesus says, bring me a coin. 
He says, well, whose likeness or whose picture is on this coin? They said, of course, Caesar. That's because Caesar owned everything. It was all his. Then he would take his money. You know what he would do? He would, he would give some to build this palace. He would take some to build these aqueducts or to build these roads. The king owned it all. You know, our money, yes, it's got pictures of past presidents, but they never owned the money. It's, you know, the government that they own, it's the U.S. Treasury. But in this day and time, the king owned everything. It was all his, and he would lend it out. You would then pay taxes, but here's the key. He was personally investing this money. Everyone that had money, it was truly Caesar's. It was The kings. So this is what makes what happens next so amazing. So the king, he owns it all. Verse 27, out of pity for this man, the servant, the master of the servant released him and he forgave him the debt. So he had pity, meaning he was moved to compassion. He heard a a story of what was going on and he was moved to act with compassion means he identified with someone's pain. And you, you know what that's like when you love someone so much and, man, they're hurting or, or they're sick and it's almost like you can physically feel that. And the king, he's moved with compassion. But then he does two things. One, he releases him. So he identifies with this man's pain, with his struggle, but then he grants him his freedom. In fact, the king could have said, you know what, listen, I understand your situation. I hear this all day long, but you know what, my hands are tied. Nothing I can really do. I might give you some more time, but that's the best I could do. But no, this king, he grants him his freedom. But it's this last thing that is the most amazing part. He forgave the debt. Remember the king, he owns it all. So his money, the king's money, has either been mishandled or stolen. The king is out the money. Just like you would take out a loan maybe for your house and you are given money that isn't yours to buy that in a debt is owed. So the king is not simply saying, listen, okay, you didn't mean to. We all in on hard times. All is forgiven. Let's just move on. Because when a debt is created, every single time someone has to pay for the debt. Someone has to absorb the loss. And this is what the king does for the servant. He doesn't just forgive him and say, well, let's move on. In forgiving the king, he absorbs the servant's mistakes and he takes on that debt. In forgiving the king, he's actually bearing the cost of the servant's trouble. The king isn't saying, okay, poof, the debt is gone. You'll try better next time. He is saying, I will bear the cost of your mistake. Because the servant, he's, he's, he's beyond hope. There's no help for him in paying this back. No way he could ever earn enough. And so the king, 
He's well within his rights to sell this man and his family, but instead he relates to the man's suffering. He gives him his freedom, but then he absorbs, he bears the cost of the servant's debt. Now I wish I had good news about what the servant then goes and does, because I can't imagine how great that must have felt. Beyond hope, and all of a sudden that debt was assumed by the man that loaned it to me in the first place. But look at what happens in 28. And when the same servant, Jesus wants to make sure we understand the same guy, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began, and get this, to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. Now, this is meant to be an incredible contrast. So, the first guy owns 10,000 talents. This guy owns 100 denarii. A denarii was about a day or maybe a day and a half's wages. So, about a third of a yearly income. But one talent was around 6,000 denarii. So the first servant, he owned 60 million denarii. The guy that owes him owes 100. I mean, that's how vastly different these two debts are. In fact, the, the difference in these amounts should stand out, but even more is the servant's response. After receiving pity, being released and forgiven of an astronomical amount, he goes and finds a man that owes him one ten thousandth of a percent of what he owed. And he finds him, he seizes him, and he begins to choke the man, depending that he, or demanding that he pay him. I mean, can't you just see the absurdity of this man's actions? Look at verse 29. And so his fellow servants, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And notice the exact same phrase. Have patience on me and I will pay you. So he uses the exact phrase, but notice the difference of response in verse 30. He refused and he went and he put him in prison until he could pay the debt. You see the difference that he didn't just take the man and his family and sell all he had and, and give them jobs or, or sell them to someone where he would be a, a servant to pay back. He puts him in prison. And I've never been in prison, thankfully. But I think it's hard to find a job that you actually make money to then pay someone back. And so what happens is that debt was then uh, had to be assumed by his family. That burden was shifted to them. But now word travels back to what this servant did to the king. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you of all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I have had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I mean, the king can't believe 
what he heard. He showed compassion and he gave this man his freedom. He forgave his debt, meaning he assumed it as his own. But he then goes and demands someone to pay him a fraction of what he owed. Man, that servant, he should have been went away overjoyed. He should have went away wanting others to, to experience what he just did. But instead, he does the exact opposite. And what we see here is that grace was given, but he didn't understand it. I mean, it was given, but he didn't appreciate it. It was given, but he was not overwhelmed with it. And that's what happens when you realize that, oh, I've just been let off the hook. So he demands that he be repaid. He demands that the wrong done to him, that it be made right. He wants that man to suffer for what he's done to him. I imagine at this point Jesus has Peter's total attention. Because in verse 35, he says, And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, we got to be careful. We want to make sure Jesus is not promoting a works-based salvation. All you got to do is turn your TV like I do on early Sunday mornings, and you'll hear sermons like I did this morning that tell you otherwise. But we know that salvation is not by the works that we do. A sinner like you and me, we are made right. We could use the word justified before God by faith, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 could not say it any more clear. For by faith are you saved through faith. is not of your works. It is a gift of God. So faith comes before justification. Before you're ever right with God, faith comes first. But there's actually something that comes before faith. You know, so much more to salvation than we realize that faith is what we have to have in order to be right before God. It, it's by grace. We don't earn it. But there's something that comes before faith. In two great places, we see it in John 3, 3, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or 1 John 5, verse 1, Therefore, anyone... Who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Faith has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born again. So what happens before faith is called regeneration. Or the Bible uses the term new birth. This means that no one believes or has faith in Christ that has not first been born again. Meaning no one believes, no one has faith in Christ that has not already been given a new nature, the nature of Jesus Christ. And at the core of this nature is the ability and the desire of a heart of forgiveness. So I think this is what Jesus is saying, that if we don't forgive, we're not forgiven. We're not justified, we're not God's children, regardless of what we might profess that our forgiveness of others 
is only possible because we've already ourselves been forgiven. That our forgiveness of others is evidence that we have been born again. And if we can't or we won't forgive, I think we need to truly examine our hearts and ask God to reveal to us, do I truly belong to Him? But I'll be honest, hey, forgiveness is really difficult. It is so hard in certain circumstances, especially when there's pain on top of pain and hurt on top of hurt, let down on top of let down. Some of us, have heard words from someone that have cut us so deeply and hurt us that forgiveness seems impossible. Some of us are in marriages that are suffering because things have happened and we are wondering if there is any hope of forgiveness. We think about all the times in the past and we wonder, how can this time be any different? Some of us have had some tragical things happen that have happened in your life and you can't even talk about the pain that you have had to endure. So listen, I know life is painful at times and forgiveness is never easy. But forgiveness is to be a way of life for a follower of Christ. So let me quickly show you three things to take home from this king. First of all, he took pity on him. He related to the servant. In order for forgiveness to happen, you know what? We have to relate to people. Because it's what happens when you get hurt, and I know when I get hurt, you know what we do? We disassociate ourselves from the people that hurt us. You begin to assume the worst in them. We can stop giving people the benefit of the doubt. Someone lies to you, or they lie to me, you know what they are to me? They're a liar. But if I lie, I make a mistake. And what happens? Don't we do that? We disassociate ourselves. We're not like that. But if we are going to forgive, we have to have pity. We have to identify with them that we are all sinners in need of grace. And that is why forgiveness is so important in a sinful world where all the people are sinners. We all need this and then he set him free that forgiveness listen it can be risky and it can be dangerous you're going to put yourself out there i know that you could be opening up yourself to more hurt absolutely but to be forgiven is to be freed and empowered to forgive but the last one is that he forgave the debt and to me this is probably the most remarkable Thing about this parable. Because anytime a debt is incurred, the debt must be repaid. You can't just say, poof, the debt is gone, forgiven. Someone always pays every debt. Someone will always suffer. Either the offender must suffer or the one that has been offended. And this is why forgiveness is so hard. And listen, this is why forgiveness is so painful. Because when you forgive someone, just like that king, you are bearing the cost of their sin. Because forgiveness 
is bearing the cost of someone else's sin. So when you are wronged or I'm wronged when we're hurt, listen, we want someone to pay. But forgiveness, it's giving up the right to seek repayment for someone who has wronged you or hurt you. Forgiveness is bearing the cost of someone's sin. So think about your life as I've thought about mine this week. Is there someone that maybe you need to go and ask forgiveness of that you're realizing, oh wait, they've been bearing the cost of my sin. If you're letting them and you're, you, you haven't asked for their forgiveness, that's what they're doing. They're bearing your cost. Maybe there's someone that's hurt you and you're having such a hard time forgiving. Because listen, it is hard to forgive. It's painful to forgive. Because when you do, you are doing the most gracious act there is. You're bearing the cost of their sin. So as we go from this place this morning, remember that you and I, we have accumulated a debt that we could never pay back. Jesus has now bore the cost of that debt. And he offers us the most gracious act of paying that debt. You and I, we could never measure the indebtedness that we have to him. Therefore, we should, uh, there should be no measure to the amount of forgiveness that we offer to those that seek it. So forgiveness is hard, it is painful, and it is risky. Because forgiveness is bearing the cost of someone else's sin. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.